0: Hi, I'm Tim Rude, the head of government and industry relations for CITUS AMC. Welcome to the latest edition of On the Hill. So my next guest is likely best known for extensive work in the real estate and mortgage sectors on CNBC. However, she's covered stories from the JonBenet Ramsey murder mystery, the trial of the Oklahoma city bomber, and all the way to the Moscow Bureau of the NBC where she chronicled the brief presidential campaign of Mikhail Gorbachev. Diana Olick, please note that Diana is joining uh, this interview from a live and quite busy newsroom. So there might be a little bit of background noise. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So Diana, I I was thinking about that this morning. It's like, you know, me telling your background feels a bit like, you know, watching the credits before a movie, just, just a little flat. But for you, I think it would be a better approach given that you know our listeners first met you in the early probably 2000s on CNBC I thought it'd be way more interesting for you to take us through a bit of you know where you're from how you got to CNBC I mean you grew up in Manhattan right
1: Yeah I did and and I think everything you're saying just means I'm really old so I'm sympathetic <laughs> Thanks and I'll just say it, the the Gorbachev thing was actually CBS, so I can I can go back and oh. start. Um, really, I, I yeah, as you said, I grew up in uh, New York City, New York City kid, and I ended up, you know, I was went to college. Actually, started at Cornell, transferred to Columbia because I was very into Soviet studies for some reason, and I wanted to go to Moscow my junior year. And so I went there, I did that. I then, when I was there, actually ended up, because it was 1988, it was the Reagan-Gorbachev summit in Moscow. And someone from CNN asked our student group if we would be willing to stay on past the time that school ended and if we would be kind of what they call fixers or translators or just help the journalists at CNN who were getting incredible access that they'd never had before. And they said they couldn't pay us, but they would extend our dorms and they would give us free food. And for somebody who had been living in Moscow in 1988 for six months, the idea of free American food that they were bringing (laughs) over, it was kind of like done. And that's really where my whole journalism thing started. I didn't really know that I wanted to be a TV news journalist until that week that I spent in the Rossiya Hotel, working for CNN, but on the same floor as ABC, CBS, and NBC, which had moved all their Washington bureaus and all their anchors. So there was Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Bernie Shaw, all all the the greats of the 80s, all on one floor reporting on this incredible story. And that's kind of where TV news all began for me. So I went to graduate school at Medill at Northwestern, and then I started in local news. And I won't say what year because that really dates (laughs) me back, but oh, I can actually, because I said I was studying in college in 88. So anyway, I started it. WABI channel. You can edit that out,
0: Diana. We'll edit yeah, that. Yeah,
1: thank you. Edit that. Out. <laughs> um, I started in Bangor, Maine, yep. WABI channel five, which was a very teeny tiny station up in Bangor, but they did have a microwave live truck, which was huge. <laughs> and it, it did freeze. The mask tended to freeze because it was Bangor, Maine. So they carried several hair dryers in the truck. So sometimes after a live shot in the evening, if it was too cold, we would have to climb up on top of the truck with the blow dryers and basically keep the mast until I came down. That was my start. I went from there to Grand Rapids and then on to Seattle. And then I, from Seattle, went to CBS News for seven years. And that's where I did stories like the Oklahoma City bombing, JonBenet Ramsey. And when I did actually go back to Russia to cover, I was actually the Moscow Correspondents vacation, but I went and ended up interviewing Gorbachev, who was actually doing his first presidential run which was a massive failure because the Yeltsin was in power. And um, we followed him around and I think he got 2% of the vote, but it was just <laughs> stunning to me to see after what I'd seen in 1988 and then to cover that. And I guess, I do was that 1997, 90, something like that. And then I came back, I guess, so After that, I ended up in Washington, finally, at CBS, and that's why I'm in Washington now. And from there, I went to CNBC, where I have been for, yes, 20
0: years. Wow. Thank you for that. So I'm going to summarize that, Diane, and just say that basically, much of your youth before CNBC, you were basically cold and hungry. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay. That's why I thought you were leading me, so thank you. <laughs> so all right let's pivot back to the fun stuff. So what do you what are you seeing now that basically makes you bullish or bearish on real estate? And I'll give you dealer's choice here, right? So you can pick all classes of real estate or you can pick a particular class that you find interesting.
1: I mean, it's just such a wide broad spectrum it's hard to answer because whether we're talking about commercial real estate, residential real estate, the mortgage market, investor real estate, single family rentals, all of that. I mean, I just it's why I work 20 hours a day. I think I'm a bit bearish on the current housing market, just because it's wildly expensive. And even though mortgage rates came back a little bit, thanks to this wonderful banking stress, we're now calling it banking stress. We don't say the word crisis or anything like that. But the banking stress has pulled mortgage rates back a little, but they've already moved a bit higher off those lows and they're already four percent a year ago now six and a half percent so and home prices have not pulled back very much because of the supply side situation that you have there's just nothing for sale and new listings are actually down which is weird because it's officially spring on monday uh, and you would normally see a lot of houses come on the market and we're just not seeing that so people are nervous they're not seeing a lot out there and for what is out there anything that's good that comes on the market at a reasonable price is still getting bid up So I think the housing market right now is in a really tough spot. It's still incredibly expensive, despite the fact that mortgage rates have pulled back a little bit, thanks to this banking stress story that we've been reporting. Um, And so buyers out there, they're finding very little on the market. New listings are incredibly low for this time of year. I mean, it's spring on Monday and we're just not seeing very much coming onto the market, but it's affordability, plain and simple. It's rough for first time buyers. And for sellers, you know, a lot of folks are sitting out there with 2.9% on 30-year fixed. And do they want to trade that for 6.5% and move to something else? I don't think so. And that's why we have supply as low as it is. If we're talking about investors in the single family rental market, that market is still incredibly strong. People who can't afford to buy are renting. That's why you're seeing apartment vacancies very low. You're seeing rents pulling back a little bit, but not significantly. And for the single family rental market, that market is incredibly strong. And that's a particularly interesting one I like to cover because it all kind of came out of the great recession when investors Mm -hmm. bought up all kinds of properties and everybody thought they were going to sell them in a couple of years and they didn't. And we saw all these, you know, single family rental leads spring up American homes for rent invitation homes which have done incredibly well. And they're starting to build homes for rent now. So um, the market is just fascinating in the single family rental area because who knew that you could double the amount of inventory there and still have strong occupancy.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think we can both agree also that serfdom is probably a bad economic policy for the country and social policy, but that that seems to be the way things are headed in the absence of any material policy changes either at the state or local level that would affect land use and zoning sort of restrictions or something that comes from you know really enticing carrots or sticks from the federal level that will then pull the local and um, state level um, policymakers in the right direction to allow for more building more density but that's that's an enigma in itself
1: yeah i mean you're seeing some of that in certain places yeah. but really when you talk to any commercial developer you know, they're saying, I would love to build affordable housing, but I can't pencil it. And that's the term they use as they can't pencil. It means they just cannot afford to build it because of the high prices for land, labor, materials, etc. And yeah. um, even though land prices have come down a little bit, Um, It's just wildly expensive. So they can only build what they call, you know, class A, which is the more expensive product. And that's not exactly what we need on the market. We are going to see an incredible amount of supply right now. I think there are more apartments coming on the market this year. I heard a crazy stat than any other year in like 50 years or something. There's just a huge amount of apartment supply coming on. But again, it's not all affordable housing. Much of it is not affordable housing.
0: Yeah, no, I think there's a million units coming online this year in apartment.
1: Yeah, something like that. It's staggering, a yeah, crazy amount.
0: It'd be interesting. Even in the housing
1: think. starts numbers we saw this morning—we got. Uh, or I don't know if you're hearing this, whenever, but the February housing starts that we got showed huge gains in multifamily housing starts as well as multifamily permits. It's like, how much do we need? I guess they think we need more.
0: Yeah, I mean, so as I've been fond of saying, you know, you've got 300 and whatever million people in the United States, and they have a a bias towards living indoors. So if it becomes totally unaffordable to buy, then naturally, they're going to find themselves to the alternative, which is renting. And as the demographic trend continues, and you start having the millennials kind of age into that adulthood, parenthood, and things like that, it's hard to raise kids in a, you know, 600, 700 square foot apartment, so you pivot from that when you can't buy in the suburbs or even the exurbs, and you find yourself compelled to the white picket fence, green space, more space, universal space through single family rental. Um, and you you know deal with that for as long as you can. But of course, owning a home is forced savings, whereas renting is uh, obviously you're helping somebody else's savings account, not necessarily your own. So I don't know how long you yeah. can put up that either.
1: Well, it's interesting though, you know we used to think of single family rentals as being, well,, I have to live here. I can't afford to buy a home. But some of these communities that are being built by the single-family rental developers actually are really nice. I've been out to see a bunch of them. and you know, they're full amenities. They're swimming pools. there're gyms, you know, there's entertainment facilities there. There's a dog park, the whole thing. And you have the house and you have a lawn and you have, Somebody who is responsible for anything that breaks and responsible for mowing your lawn and responsible for shoveling your snow. And I talked to folks renting there, some of whom said they could afford to buy. And I said, well, then why are you renting? And they said, well, because I would rather not deal with the, you know, the fluctuates, the high price of homes for one thing, even though they could afford it. They feel like they might be catching a falling knife right now at home prices pull go back. But they also said, you know, I like the ease of it. I like everything being done for me. I like not being responsible for it. If a hurricane or a flood or a tornado comes through and it gets destroyed, not my problem. Also, I can be finished with a lease and move on and and not have to worry about selling a house because a lot of people want to be flexible and where they can move now. So I don't think the whole single family rental idea, especially in some of these really super nice communities, is really that bad. Uh,
0: Yeah, so I can be I'm sympathetic on this. Topic two, do you just, for the record, do you have any, you have one or two kids, two kids, right? Twins. I do. I have two kids, yeah. Okay. So I think your kids are close to the same age as mine. They're probably Gen Z, millennial types, right? Let's just call them in their early 20s. How about that?
1: Yeah, they're in college right now. All right. Fair enough. So not quite in getting, not needing housing yet.
0: So I I always say that because I have four and they're, I don't know, 22 to 17 or so. But the idea... Of one of these knuckleheads owning a house, hell, replacing a light bulb would be the moon to these kids. So there is something too that whole. Hey, maybe renting is a is the right place for you, at least for the foreseeable future, because the things you have to deal with almost on a day to day, certainly on a week to week basis, with a house um, definitely requires some ingenuity, some initiative, and quite frankly, some money. None of which my kids have. So I don't know. Maybe this generation would be better off renting at least again well, for the I foreseeable mean, people future. don't
1: generally buy the the i think the median age of buying is around between 30 and 35 right. so i wouldn't expect anyone in their 20s to be really wanting to buy unless they were you know had gotten a great job early and had the money to do it but i think renting is a great idea i didn't buy my first place until i was
0: 30 i certainly rented all over the country and all these wonderful little tiny towns that i moved to Yep. No, I agree. I agree. But again, like I said, you know, we've got to find a way to obviously increase homeownership as it is the seems to be the last legitimate wealth creation opportunity. It ain't linear and it ain't perfect, but there's a lot of upside to it. But we'll see how that plays out. So, as you mentioned, um, we were talking about dates. So today is March 16th, 2023, which is the, I believe this, yeah, this is the anniversary of the date that Bear Stearns failed in 2008. I was thinking about it this morning, you work with uh, Andrew Sorkin, I'm pretty sure he wrote the book that it was too big to fail, right? Yes. That was his book. So in, in that book, he had said, he had quoted, I think it was Dick Fold, the CEO of Lehman Brothers. He famously said, right before he filed for bankruptcy, he's like, really? So I'm the schmuck in this scenario? <laughs> Along that lines, do you, do you think, I don't know, what do you think that Greg Becker from Silicon Valley Bank, obviously, they, went into bankruptcy last week. What do you think he was thinking right before, or saying right before you went into bankruptcy? That's more tongue-in-cheek, uh, you not have to have an answer.
1: Yeah, there. no, I mean, this is not my area, really. I don't know. I, I look at everything from a real estate perspective. We obviously, when this hit, we just went into full speed. I, I say things like this are like cat five hurricanes for CNBC. So that's what this week has really been like. Uh, I've been looking at it from the commercial real estate angle. I've been talking to a lot of folks, developers, lenders, um, and even from I also cover climate and a lot of companies invested in Silicon Valley Bank, they say on their website, 150 were climate related companies, whether it was climate tech or climate, you know, clean energy and all those things. So I don't know what the CEO was thinking. I don't want to go there, but this was had wide ranging impacts and will continue to have wide ranging impacts, even on mortgage rates across all the things that I cover.
0: Yeah, there'll be, um, I'm sure many conversations and probably in classrooms for decades to come about basically, you know, ultimately where that company was focusing its time energy of the leadership team, whether it was in the right places, whether it was at the expense of the right places, you know, not for me or you to judge, but certainly there's a lot to unpack. And it'll probably be, you know, it'll be years before we fully appreciate all the things that went on that led up to that. But it, it more in generally, I, I obviously at a, because of the, regional banks and the interest rate environment and whatnot were clearly at a pivotal, pivotal period in the post-COVID recovery. And you know as we're just discussing, we're seeing some cracks in the foundation. And it's caused at least in large part by the Fed raising interest rates at an unprecedented pace. I mean, it's not unprecedented levels, but it's certainly the highest levels we've seen in a, in a decade or two. But I know we talked a little bit about SDB, but as you're looking at it, what do you make of that whole route in the regional bank market? And how do you feel it impacting real estate and lending? And today I saw you talking a little bit about that. So hopefully I'm not catching you too flat-footed. No, no, this is exactly what I've been talking about this
1: week. It's funny because when it first happened and everyone was talking about SBB being invested in, uh, agency mortgage backed securities, and oh my God, you know the value of those going down. But what's so interesting is it's not that the MBS was bad. It's not like the Great Recession when mortgages in those securities were bad. Today, mortgage quality is really exceptional. It's just that um it, the value had gone down because of inflation and because of what the Fed was doing, raising interest rates, etc. And I won't get into all the technicals of all that. But and I'm sorry about the sound here, but. Suddenly the newsroom got busy. Um, But what I would say is it's going to affect real estate in every respect. We've seen it affecting mortgage rates coming back. Are they going to head higher depending on what the Fed decides to do next week? But I was talking to Willie Walker, who is just a great source for me. He is a Walker and Dunlop, which is a commercial real estate lender. And he was saying to me, look, all real estate development is based on relationships with regional banks. Anybody who is developing, whether it's an office building, apartment building or building single family homes, they are working with regional banks. They're largely not going with the big names. And so they have these relationships and they also maybe have debt with them already, et cetera. And so in the past week, when people were going, oh, my God, I have to pull my money out of these small regional banks and put them in the big names, you know, throw them in JP Morgan or throw them somewhere else. Um, You can't do that as a developer because then you ruin the relationship or you might also have that debt being held as a security against future debt. I mean, it's all tied together. You can't break that relationship with the regional bank. So a lot of developers, builders were put in a kind of scary situation because they didn't want to lose their money, but they also didn't want to lose those relationships. So that was a really important aspect of this. And then again, you know, when you're talking about consumer confidence in the economy, remember buying a house is the single most emotional event most people have because it is their single largest investment. And so when you have the economy and people worried about a banking system, you know, that's that seems to be on poor footing, do I suddenly want to make the biggest investment in my life or do I want to upgrade my home and spend even more money? You know, that's another part of it. So this really is kind of sent waves through all aspects of real estate
0: yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that you can't underestimate the impact of uh, that community bank, regional bank relationship with the builders and even some mortgage companies, but more specifically on the builder side, you know what's interesting is if you look at the um, the federal home loan bank system, if you look at the boards, and don't ask me why I, why I was looking at this recently, but if, if you look at the boards, the board of directors for each of those federal home loan banks, probably a third to a half of the board members, are builders in their region and that reflects that sort of tight relationship that they have personal professional it's that uh three-legged race sort of thing you know we, we see, were going to i did prosper not know together. that
1: i am learning something yeah right. see
0: don't <laughs> act so shocked <laughs> yeah. diana
1: no i just like you know i thought i had like covered all of this but i did not know that there were that many builders on the board i mean it doesn't surprise me but
0: No, no. So it's so it's a big deal. It might push. What's interesting, and we can cover this as much as you want now or at another time. But you know, you see the government, uh, the federal government, expanding its footprint in mortgage and and mortgage adjacent, which is you know light touch on housing. Now that the federal government you know originates or backs eighty five percent of all new originations, probably close to ninety percent of loans that are serviced out in the market today. But it. Given how critical it is to have new construction, generally speaking, you're going to if the if the regional and community banks are pulling back for all the reasons that you know you mentioned and then some, then you're going to compel places like particularly Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the GSEs, to expand their footprint further where they have traditionally not done construction loans, construction development loans because they have to lend on real estate. Well, they do
1: multifamily. Isn't Freddie Mac really big in multifamily, though?
0: Yeah, yeah. They both do multifamily. What they don't do is development um, development loans or, or real construction loans, unless there's a permanent loan. Not to get into crazy specifics. But I think you're what you would be doing, if that is the case, and knowing that from a public policy perspective, just as we said that serfdom is bad public policy, heck, you need find opportunities to build more housing and build more housing for entry-level borrowers, uh, more specifically. So therefore, you're going to need to develop lots. You're going to need to get permits and all that fun stuff. So in the absence of that funding, or if the fight funding tightens up so much, that, to your point, what was barely penciling out before just does not pencil out because you have to put down too much money, and the interest rates are too high, and uh, the market is too volatile, then you'll basically be, um, you'll be drawing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac into that market that they typically and arguably are not supposed to be in per their charter. But the government, I suspect, will will underwrite their move into that space because it's for the greater good, the enlightened self-interest, if you will, for the um for the markets.
1: Yeah, but I don't I don't know that we're there yet. I mean, there's still a lot of investor money pouring into real estate because it's a great place to put your money when things are volatile because it's you know it's hard assets. And I don't know. I, I see a lot of cash going to real estate. I saw it during the pandemic when people were concerned about putting their money in the markets. So when you know the REITs all were doing very well. And um you look at the home builders, they seem to be the big ones. The, the public ones seem to be very well capitalized right now. So I don't know that we're really there yet unless something really big with the regional banks were to happen. But that's what really keeps the regional banks afloat. Don't we want that?
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think that uh, I believe that was also on today. Either I was reading it or an article or something that you were um, interviewing somebody in, and they made the good point, which is you know, you kind of have to look at the, we have the stress test, but the stress tests generally reflect, you know, adverse market conditions, like, oh my God, the, you know, GDP drops X, interest rates, you know, go down as a consequence to try to counter that asset prices fall, blah, blah, blah. But they really haven't contemplated, at least not in the, the formal stress tests, the sort of scenarios where, you know, the black swan events were like, hey, what are you going to do if interest rates go up 10% over the next 12 months? I'm being obviously Uh, hyperbolic, but you know what I'm saying, that it doesn't seem like the the financial institutions or even, you know, people who are witnessing and reporting on it can fully appreciate what that next event will will be. And in the event that it happens, I'm just saying that it's certainly there's precedent that the GSEs or another government agency will uh, sheepishly go and enter into those markets for the good of the country. And I'm saying that tongue in cheek because These government agencies love jumping into those markets and being the savior. They love expanding their footprint and having wider dominion on whatever the heck it is that they're supposed to cover. So dog ear that page, because I I think we'll be talking about it probably in 12 to 24 months, depending on market conditions. Yeah, but
1: I, I would just throw out that, you know, while the government did jump in after the great financial crisis and the subprime mortgage crisis specifically, and you had your what were the hamps and the harps, the, the modification programs, whatever to save borrowers, what really saved the housing market after that was investors who came in and bought up all those foreclosed properties and either flipped them or turned them into single family rentals or whatever. I know a lot of people say, oh my God, they were the evil wizards that did that. and It was all this terrible, big business takeover of the housing market. But if you look at what they did really, which was that they put a floor on home prices, which were Amen. crashing. And somebody needed to do that. And that was investors who came in. And whether it was the Blackstones of the world or the, you know, Silvergate, wh- whoever who came in, they were not the bad guys in that scenario. And the money was there because they did see it as a good business going forward. And a lot of them got out of it, you know, they sold off, but um, a lot of them stayed in. And I think that was what saved the housing market that time. Now, this time, you know, I don't think we're at that point. Although I will say, you know, Lenar reported earnings this week and Stuart Miller, who was just one of my, favorite people when it comes to talking about housing because he just knows everything and has been around it forever they're the second largest home builder he said in the earnings release you know we can't see around the corner right now and we're concerned so we're keeping our noses down we're watching community to community and we'll have to adjust and it may hit our margins and it may hit home prices but it was very interesting that he said more than once we just can't see around the corner
0: yeah, that's fair. And I think your point on the investors is one that I share wholeheartedly. You probably remember last year, there was a hearing, I think it was Senate Banking or House Financial Services on that the role of investors in this market. And they got really pistol whipped, which I thought was criminal in the sense that, to your point, you know, if, if it wasn't for the private investors stepping into those markets in, say, 2012, Who's to say whether organically those markets ever would have gotten back to you know a reasonable level? I mean, could you achieve that just through organic demand or did it require that sort of, you know that intervention, if you will, uh, from, say, the private investors that that obviously set a floor, bought up that property, put their capital at risk, took all the risk that it could have easily just as easily gone down. And um yeah, it seems that they should be handled it more than, um, Right.
1: At I think the problem now is that you have certain markets like in Atlanta or something where certain neighborhoods are very investor heavy. And that's hard right. for people who do want to buy homes, you know, just to live in. And so that's the argument that that's kind of it's hard to take aside right now because you don't want markets flooded by investors who have all cash and are really pushing out owner occupants. And that is happening in some local neighborhoods and different, you know, hot markets, as I said, in Atlanta or parts of the south or in Phoenix, et cetera. But on the whole, institutional investors still own less than five percent of single-family rental homes. I think it's actually closer to two percent, which is not a lot. Most no, no, of I totally agree. Out I, there I, who, I, yeah, who own it? They're they're either mom and pops or they're investors who own ten or twenty properties. And you know, then you can get into the arguments of oh, these big companies—they're setting rents, they're pushing rents, they're evicting people, whatever. You know, I'm sure there's some of that. I'm sure there's that with small investors, and I'm sure that's been happening. For decades. I mean, the rental market is as old as the housing market is, and there have been issues with landlords forever. Um yeah. some of the bigger landlords have really actually kind of you have management companies, they have apps, they have when something's wrong with your house, you can just you can get help very quickly as opposed to, you know, maybe 30 years ago when you had to call your landlord and you couldn't find them and they were never going to come fix what the problem was. Now it's all been kind of mechanized across the system. That doesn't mean, again, that they're not raising rents. They don't have that power. That's one side of it. It's just hard to argue either side. I could argue both. There, I just did.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I think I'm with your original point of view on this, which is that the institutional investors and the e-buyers are a, a bit of a, a solution looking for a problem that is kneecapping them or, or trimming them in terms of where and what they can invest in is, is really, I don't know, misguided because, again, they were such a small fraction of the, uh, of the market. They did serve an important purpose. And now, to your point, you're lumping in out of, I guess, just, just apparent expediency, mom-and-pop investors who do make up 80% of that, um, of that rental market. They're the ones who are now also being lopped in with the institution, institutional investors and e-buyers and labeled somehow as like venal Wall Street types that don't care about the, you know, the good of the neighborhoods that they've invested in and drive by their houses and work on their houses that generally buy within, what, 100 miles of their own primary residence? So I don't I don't know why somehow that these are, are the bad guys and that they're actually just like these investments, uh, these institutional investors and e-buyers. I mean, quite frankly, if you look at it and you start being critical about whether it's them, or even the, the, the large owners of uh, rental properties, the fact that they had the audacity to, I'm being facetious, uh, they had the audacity to raise rates or raise rental um, rates on their properties after what? Roughly two years, of probably not getting payments. I didn't see any crocodile tears for these guys that were financing, in some cases, paying for government policies.
1: We went out and we did a ton of stories in that first year of COVID of landlords who were not getting paid, were not getting any assistance, were trying to get help from the government. And these are people, a lot of whom own four or five rental properties, and that's their income, that's their business. And there's nothing wrong with that business. It's a good business. And they didn't get paid for one, two, and even three years, and were not able to evict. You know, that was a tough position. You don't want to put people on the street in a pandemic. Obviously, they didn't want to either. But there was no one out there that was really helping to make them whole. And then there was some government rental assistance that came in, but it came in pretty late. And a lot of these folks were suffering in that first year with getting no income whatsoever.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll close with that uh, that topic with this conversation I had in the last two days with a, a public official. And I was like, hey, are you um, paying attention to, concerned about um, the fact that there seems to be a trend in policymaking where they're essentially being paid for by the private sector, either they're financing them or paying for the policies that are you know, off budget in the in the government parlance, that they're not obviously something that you have to run through Congress to pay for, not pay for, or to appropriate monies for. I said, are you aware of that? And what do you think of that? Do you think that there'll be more of that? Is that a, a trend? And the uh, politician's response was, boy, I sure hope so. So the private sector, I think, is going to be far more on the hook if you look at even the SBB and the regional banks that have been um, obviously taken out in the last week or so. But again, the government is pitching this as, hey, look, relax. It's not going to cost any money. It'll be fine. You know, We're going to hit everybody with a new assessment for the insurance on uh, guaranteed deposits. So it, you, nobody will even notice knowing that essentially that if that if that increases the cost of doing business for the banks that they'll find a way to flow that down to customers either in lower rates higher fees or service It always manifest in some impact to the consumer don't you think yeah
1: sure i mean it's just the next weeks are going to be very interesting but i, I think what's more interesting is what just what the fed decides to do next wednesday what is going to happen with their decision on mortgage rates or, or on interest rates, which mortgage rates, they don't follow the Fed specifically, but they do follow the Fed's thinking. And I really think that's the crux of everything right now.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, let's let's slow down for a minute. I, I was thinking about a couple of things this morning that I wanted to cover. And I, I won't bore you with the first, first time we met. If there's time um, at the end of this, uh, we can cover it. But it was a pretty hilarious scenario on uh, at the studio on North Capitol Street that if we don't cover it today, we'll cover it later. But it made me think that there has to be like one or two interviews or guests that you really, that I guess they really nailed the moment, right? Someone who called it before it happened or brought everything into clear focus, or I don't know, someone who was monumentally wrong. You don't have to name names, I don't think, but I guess a good example of that is, was it Greenspan that was proclaiming that uh, subprime losses were contained? Can you think of one or two of those sort of interviews that really with you, that nailed the moment?
1: I don't know if that's mean or whatever, but I think it's out there. I mean, the um, chief economist for the National Association of Realtors, his name was David Luray. I don't know where he is now, but he literally came out with a book the year that it all came crashing down. And it was, I can't remember the title, but it was something to the effect of, the greatest housing market ever or something <laughs> like that, or the greatest housing boom or something like that. And it just, it, it just could not have been worse timing because he just missed the whole thing. But look, to be fair, you know, there was a lot of mumblings about that. I remember when we were reporting on, I guess it was 2006, 2007. And it's funny because the whole reason I got the real estate beat going at CNBC had to do with the run up to the crisis. And that was that, You know, to be very honest, and this is just personal, when I started here, I had no business background whatsoever. I did not like business news. I did not want to do business news, but unfortunately, I had just had twins and they were born very early and I could no longer, you know, run around the country and I hate to say on a pager because that hates me, but you know, I couldn't be on a pager and run around the country and do whatever 24-7. So I needed a job that was more nine to five and five days a week. And that was CNBC at the time. It's not that anymore. I mean we still don't program on the weekends, but we do work incredibly long days now. Um, but that's what it was back then. It was a nine to five day job in TV news and you didn't really travel much, which is very rare. So that's why I took the job and it was after two years here that I said to my husband, I I don't really understand what I'm doing. I don't love this. I don't, you know, I can't be covering the Senate Finance Committee anymore because my head will explode. Um, (laughs) And he said, well... You know, it's a good job though, and we get great benefits, and NBC is a great company, and blah, blah, blah. Is there anything that you think is really interesting that they don't really cover as a beat? And I said, Well, you know, we've done this million dollar home series that I did, and that was kind of fun. And people have been talking about real estate a lot and home flipping and all that. And he's like, Well, do they have a real estate beat? And I said, No, they actually don't. So I pitched it. And we, you know, he was in advertising at the time, so he helped me make this whole pitch using all this data about the yeah the brands that it could be. He was big into brand marketing. And, um, I got a big fat no. no. There's not enough to cover in real estate as a full beat. It's not that big a deal to the economy. blah blah blah, which I thought was kind of ridiculous at the time, yeah, um, but actually, the person who said no was left the company soon after that. And I, I don't believe she left it burning board. So anyway, I pitched it again and it was, I guess, right around 2005 and there was all this talk of crazy home flipping, prices going up and all these cool mortgages where you didn't have to pay anything. And and the boss at that point said, yeah, why don't you start doing some of these stories? And that's when I kind of hit the ground running. And I just remember over the next couple of years saying over and over and over again that because I was so new to the beat myself that these gains in home prices don't make any sense. If you look, you know, I'm looking at these charts that were all new to me. I'm trying to learn the beat, and I'm saying the home price is going up this much over this period of time doesn't make sense. And I said it over and over on on air, and I would argue with people and some of the analysts and whatever, and even with you know people from. The National Association of Builders and people from like the home builders, home builders were going crazy and they were building so much. And I'm talking to these experts and it was a long time back, so I don't remember exactly who it was, but there were a couple of people who were flying. I guess one of them was John Burns from John Burns Mm -hmm. Real Estate. He's great. Oh, my God. He is just the guru of builder data. And I rely on his insights now. You know, twenty years later, I'm still calling him up, saying, "John, is this right? What are we doing?" And he was the one at some point. I think I met him first at at a builder convention in Las Vegas, maybe 2006 or something. And I was supposed to do a panel, and he was on it. And he's like, "You know, this isn't normal. This isn't." And I'm like, "I don't really know what's normal because this is all new to me." And he explained to me that this was just really overheating, and we started reporting that. You know, lo and behold, it all came crumbling down. But, you know, what's so interesting at that point was that beat then just took off and it became all we were talking about for the next, I don't know, five years. And every story that came out of it was the foreclosure crisis. So the robo signing crisis, like all of it just snowballed onto itself and went from being a beat that nobody cared about to the beat that anybody, everybody was talking about. Um, So I guess it was kind of good timing for me, basically because I was bored out of my mind when I started. Yeah,
0: Yeah. again, I'm I'm sympathetic at that at times as well. But um, yeah, I mean it's times like this though. Whether it's an echo of the financial crisis, God hope not. But it is certainly times like this that get your your juices going in terms of just getting excited and really wanting to go down any rat hole you can find yourself on uh, just to explore exactly what the heck is going on. these things and understand the root causes so however you got there and your husband was spot on yeah i i've I've, even to this day find practically every day a new thread a new topic another angle to either the finance or the building side or the occupancy side of housing that well definitely gets my attention and keeps me engaged
1: yeah i say it's it is the gift that keeps on giving because i'm just kind of overwhelmed with the amount of stories to tell and we can't tell them fast enough. And there's just so much, especially now we have all kinds of franchises on CNBC.com and people doing longer form video and, you know, calling me saying, we should do this, and we should do that. And it's just, you know, it, it will keep going long after I do. Um, but it's just been a gift. This beat. It's a total gift.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for everything that you've done. I mean, it's been obviously very entertaining, but, uh, as important, very, um, Uh, Entertaining and interesting and certainly educational. Is there anything you want to cover? I I didn't want to get into, I mean, I'm always intrigued by the things, memorable interviews and things like that, but we kind of covered it. Is there anything else you'd want to cover about either the job or, you know, the current market conditions? I know you do a couple of other beats that have to do do with
1: climate. Climate is huge right now. And I I just want to say about the climate beat is I think it is the most important beat out there. And our coverage of climate, my coverage of climate came out of real estate because the two are just so intertwined. I mean, 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the real estate sector, whether it's construction or the operation of buildings or the materials made for construction. Um, It's just a huge part of it. And I started this beat because I launched a series four years ago called Rising Risks. And it was originally called the Rising Risks to Real Estate from Global Warming. And it just after that, we went past real estate onto everything else. And now I cover it full time. But that is the story. And that I think a lot of people don't really see that is the business story. biggest business story of the future and it really became clear to me when i covered cop 26 in glasgow two years ago and that was when you know we were there to talk about all the governments and them getting together and biden was there and all the presidents of countries all over the world were there and talking about what they were commit going to commit financially to the fight against global warming i was interviewing this guy from fifth wall which is a venture capital firm that deals only in the real estate market. And they do a lot in climate and they have huge funds, billions of dollars. And he said to me, he said, you know, governments will commit billions of dollars to this. He said, private capital will be in the trillions. He said, I don't know why everybody is looking at the government. They should be looking at where the private capital is going. And so we came right back from there and immediately pitched a series called Clean Start, which is where we follow that venture capital money into climate-related startups. And we've now done, I think, 37 of them in the past year. And they're fascinating to learn about these companies, some of which will fail, some of which will get very big, some of which, you know, will be eaten up by others. We've actually seen several of them bought up already. But they're fascinating entrepreneurs. They are people who are passionate about what they're doing. And interestingly, last Sunday, we started calling every single one of these that we've done because we heard that so many of no, them were invested in Silicon Valley Bank
0: no chief, and
1: yeah. one of them told us that there was a call that afternoon and could he call us back after the call and i said yeah and we ended up doing an interview with him he's the ceo of block power which is i think the first clean start we did and it was in a, it's a company based in brooklyn new york that electrifies buildings and they also have a contract in san francisco and he said you know i just got off this call where there were probably 50 ceos venture capital people whatever everybody in the climate space and if the call was all about how do we support each other through this because you know he had a million dollars at sbb another company had all their money at sbb um and in other you know banks that were suddenly under pressure and he said the call was all about the vcs coming in and saying hey we're going to back you until we can figure this out and don't worry we're not going to let you go under and other climate firms that had no affiliation with smaller banks. We're saying we're going to help back you. We're going to, you know, we've got funding here. The idea being that while the banking system may be in, under massive pressure right now, we cannot let climate go under. We cannot yeah. lose the earth because of this. It's enough to lose money. But there's something much bigger at stake here. And that to me was just a moment where you step back as a journalist, and you say, wow, you know, you just say, these are things that maybe nobody's going to know about. And we didn't even get to report that much on, on CNBC because everything was banks, banks, banks. That's but to see that. that come together because these people are not just, obviously, they're business people. They want to make money. They want to do good, whatever. That sector came together like no other sector because, again, it's about our future existence. So that's why I think climate is just the most important beat to be on right now. Uh,
0: yeah, no, you can't my that soapbox. No, I mean you're spot on. And I mean, whether it's, you know, deep in your veins or or whatever, personal passion, the, the most important part for I guess for us is you called it early and jumped on it early. And a lot of times being an entrepreneur, being early is just as bad as being late. Man, you you hit it, you know, you caught that wave pretty pretty perfectly. And I know that obviously when it comes to home building, there's a lot of legacy practices there. Everyone's trying to figure out how they increase the speed of construction, lower the cost of construction, get better access uh, to housing, whether it be um, rental or, you know, ownership. But I'll close with this one since I've kept you for a while and I do appreciate all the time. As you're thinking about that that topic around the climate startups and, and uh, the rising risks of climate change and whatnot, have you seen, is there an emerging technology or a business business model whether it could disrupt enhance real estate in general in the near future is there one or two that really just caught your eye that we should be aware of
1: well i mean there are so many i mean we've done several stories on 3d printed housing which i find fascinating Love that. Love it. so cool
0: love to it. watch and of
1: course everybody likes to watch it on tv now some people think it is not the way of the future in fact i was at the aspen ideas climate summit last week um, in miami and i was interviewing a guy who is an architect michael green he's he's really well known for using engineered wood which he wants to build skyscrapers out of wood uh which is much better for the environment than steel and cement and um he thought that 3d printing was kind of just you know it was it was fun it's interesting to watch but it's not the answer to it but that may be there are new clean cements that are out there uh, i think the electrification of buildings is fascinating i think carbon capture i thought that was so can, cool mm-hmm. yeah i mean there are so many different things we've talked to carbon capture companies that are using it for everything to you know one one company is taking uh captured carbon to make vodka another one is making diamonds another one is turning it into oil and shooting it deep in the ground you know another there are agriculture i mean there're just so many i could go on and on and on, we don't have time, but there is a lot going on in real estate. Unfortunately, home construction, anyone will tell you, is just so far behind the curve. It is very slow to modernize. I mean, even just getting what is it like nail guns like that was that was a huge thing for the business and it took them forever. I mean, wasn't it just 10 or 20 years ago you're still using a hammer to build a house? Yeah. Um, it's just been really slow to innovate, but it is starting to ramp up. We are seeing some of the big builders really get into green building. And the number one reason, it's not so much for the globe. It's because buyers are demanding it. Consumers are demanding it. They want greener homes. They you know, they want their carbon footprint to be less. And the builders are being forced to innovate, innovate now simply because their customers demand it. And that's a good thing. So I'll leave it there.
0: Yeah, I think in the end it'll it'll prove to serve both the bottom line and the, the customer's tastes. So I, I think you're you're right on it. And if we had more time, I'd talk about the carbon capture. I was blown away, particularly at the impact and how much carbon is produced by the building sector, and that innovative companies are capturing that and doing real meaningful and interesting things uh, with the byproducts, which is just crazy. It's great
1: yeah the downside only of all of this I coverage do. is i decided to I be, be vegan and okay, that's right. just painful
0: So <laughs> i was thinking about your vodka i've had that vodka it's a glacial vodka that i've had before that was um similar that used that um captured carbon yeah, this was
1: called air vodka and unfortunately they didn't send us any samples a lot of the time when you do a story on a on a company they'll send you a sample and i was like come on where's my sample
0: see i'm not we're I'm like fortunate. opposites there i'll eat damn near anything my parents own restaurants growing up so i'll eat anything but I haven't had a drink in like alcohol in probably five months. So I don't know, we'll see. But uh, in any case, I hate to leave on a downer. I intend to drink again and um, improve my diet in the near future. But and in any I'm case- sure there's a cheeseburger yeah, in my future as well. There you go. All right, well, I'll have a pop when you have a cheeseburger. We'll stay in touch.
1: Great. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, thanks, Diana. This is great. And thanks for all you do. I mean, really, you're like oh, none other. So it's you. it's fabulous. I appreciate, I appreciate it. appreciate that. We all appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com. Or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.